Listen for a word of God in Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading from the Contemporary English Bible this morning. Alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down crying because we remembered Zion. We hung our lyres up in the trees there because that's where our captors asked us to sing. Our tormentors requested songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said. How could we possibly sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? The Word of God. When I was a kid, I was lousy at a few things. I was lousy at spaghetti and red sauce. I still hate it today. I'm lousy at taking instructions. I'm lousy at losing. I'm lousy at my mother, letting my mother do my hair to come to church on Sabbath. I was also a lousy sleepover friend. So sleepovers went like this. I mean, sleepovers, you know how it is. All the friends gather. Somebody has nice parents in a house, and they put out pizza and popcorn. You play games. Here come the movies. As soon as the sun would start to set, my soul would get a little anxious. I never could quite make it all the way to bedtime. I would call my mom and get a ride home, and she would tell me, it's a sleepover. Yeah, but I did it. No, you're supposed to sleep over. Well, we'll try again, and the next time would come. Here's another nice family with pizza and popcorn and games, and we would go outside. Seems like all of my friends lived way out in the country, because I did too. The sun would start to set. This time I thought, I'm going to get my sleeping bag out, and I'll get inside this time. And I was so excited, because I did it, I made it, and I called my mom. I'm ready for my ride. It's a sleepover. I know, but I made it into the sleeping bag this time. I did it. One of the last sleepovers, I'm at my friend Denise's house. It's the same setup, here's all the friends, the pizza, the games, we're outside playing, it's time for bed, I have a strategy. I'll put my sleeping bag out early, I'll get in it before they put the movie on. This way I'll fall asleep, I'll trick myself. Before you know it, I'll have been through a sleepover all the way till the morning. And it worked, I fell asleep. When I woke up, I was so excited. Went to the phone, I called my mom, I made it. She said, it is 1 a.m.? Turns out I'm a lousy sleepover friend. My soul could not settle. I heard all the noises, the creaking floor, the owls outside. I could see all the changes in the lights, the snoring in the house, the cuckoo clock. My soul could not settle because I knew I was not at home. Unsettled souls. The Bible is a long story of unsettled souls. We're calling them sojourners in this sermon series, people who are not at home, people who live their lives on the road, wandering in exile, like those sitting by the river Babylon in the story we read this morning. They're by the rivers in Babylon, and their home, Jerusalem, is burned. By that river, they realize the temple is gone and life as they know it is gone. The king has been deported. The important citizens are gone. Culture is shattered. Families are broken. Traditions are lost. Security, certainty, it's all gone now. Life assumed, life taken for granted, it's all over. A large portion of the Old Testament is this one long exile journey for the nation of Israel. It began with Abraham and Sarah's people. They are the same people in Ezekiel that Pastor Dave spoke about last week, when Ezekiel worked with these people to understand you're not journeying towards the presence of God, you are already in the presence of God. We imagine young Daniel is in this same group of exile people, the book of Daniel in our Old Testament. The same with uh, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, large portions of, of uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations. 
The story of exile, this one long exile, 70 years, souls that would not settle. Those are the people we join again today. They are deported. They are displaced. They are dominated people. They are bitter and they're angry, actually, with a pain that causes both a deep grief and a rage. So Psalm 137, it's unlike any other psalm in all of the 150 collections of songs or poets, poems there. That's because this is the one psalm that's actually situated someplace in a real time, in a real place in history with people we've read about. Most psalms, we imagine the setting. Oh, this must be a psalm for the coronation of a king, or this, is, this must be a psalm for taking a sacrifice to the temple, or this is a psalm for forgiveness and confession, but not Psalm 137. There's no guessing required. These people are either sitting on the rivers, on the bank of the river in Babylon, or they're remembering sitting on that very river, the year 587 B.C., we can imagine that the court musicians have been carried off. One author likes to think of it that way. Their harps and instruments are in their hand and they've been carried away to Babylon. The prisoners are demanded by their captors to play a song. Give us a song from back home. Choose a good one. Give us a song from that magnificent city, Jerusalem, Zion, you know. They're taunting them and teasing them. Give us a song about the God who never sleeps or slumbers, a God who watches over you. Come on, sing for us, the captors say. We'll loosen your chains, slaves. We'll make it a little easier. Sing us one of your songs from home, from Zion. When we read the word Zion in the Bible, that is a metaphor for home, yes, and for joy and for confidence and for security and majesty. Other Psalms talk about that. And when we read the word Babylon, that's a word for everything oppressive and evil and plagues and demons. Revelation will talk about, about Babylon with sins piled up to the heavens. Sitting in Babylon, the slaves are asked to sing a song from home. They're being mocked. Their national pride is offended. And where in the world is our God? Can they even sing a song of God from home? Because technically, if we sing a song of our God from home, those songs from Zion are majestic songs. They're about a God who conquers. Are you sure you really want to hear one of those songs, Babylon? That's uh, in the hymnal. Think of the old songs like, the Lord in Zion reigneth. Yeah, reigneth, that's a word. Or um, our God is bigger, our God is stronger. Songs from Zion are conquering songs. Are you sure they can even sing those songs in Babylon? It's interesting to me that in Scripture, when we read about instruments, instruments are always taken up or they're played or they're wakened, but they're never hung up in the trees or set down, left alone. Here in Psalm 137, the musician hangs his instrument up in a tree when he's asked to sing, as if to say, no, no, we cannot sing. We will not sing for you. And this is where the text turns a little bit subversive, church family. The only words they have right now, their words actually are their weapons. They compose a song of their own, on their own terms. Notice now in the next verses in our Psalms, God is not named. Notice that they now sing as individuals. It's no longer a communal song for this moment. These two verses, a kind of rugged individualism takes over. Psalm 137 verse five says, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill and may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. 
if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. May the two things I need most as a musician, my right hand and my mouth, may they stop functioning if I forget home. This is as if to say to the oppressors, you will not dictate this song. This is not Zion's song. It's a song about Zion, but it's not a song of Zion. And then they finish the song. If you're reading, open a Bible, Psalm 137. We're at verse 7 now. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. It's now the community of musicians singing again. Remember, Lord, what our enemies did to us. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. It is as graphic as it sounds. It's shaped like a beatitude, but it's actually a curse. They answer with a curse. And there's no Bible translation, there's no paraphrase, it's not Eugene Peterson, not even Joel Olstein with a smile can fix this text. Jerusalem's babies really did die too. They died a violent death when the oppressors came in. So, so what's the point? We want your babies to die too? More to the point maybe, babies represent the future of the nation. So they're actually singing, those slaves on the rivers of Babylon are actually singing, happy is the one who puts your future to an end, your domination to an end. May you never have any babies. May there be an end to all of your horrible greed and power. In this one veiled song, a song of subversion emerges. We will not recall Jerusalem for you. You are not in control of our story. It's unrehearsed. There are some who wonder if it's actually an outburst, if it simply slips out, if it's extemporaneous, this grief that turns to rage. As a church family, this church, the liturgical service, reads this psalm, Psalm 137, every three years. And here in our other worship services, well, since for about the last 10 years, we've studied this psalm twice. Once was in 2012 during Vacation Bible School, only we spared the violent part because children, Vacation Bible School. Once was 2014, not that long ago, when we asked several questions of this psalm like, what and why? Why is this in our Bible, right? Well, maybe we should notice a few things about this, that, that God is actually not the one carrying out the violence. God is not actually identified here. Happy is the one, happy is the human who does this. Maybe we should notice that stories like this, songs like this are in our Bible because millions of people resonate throughout history. Millions of people resonate to this hate and this anger and this bitterness, right? Annihilation, domination, deportation, that the human cry of the deported soul actually has a place. Negro spirituals, they're born out of this one continuous cry of oppressive pharaohs. They cry out. We cry out. We cry out for God's love to shape our world. Maybe this is why Psalm 137 in our Bible. Walter Brueggemann says, everyone cries for mercy in exile in Babylon. Mercy from God and mercy from one another. That's what's happening in our song. 
Maybe the song, this psalm, is for us to know that God and God's graciousness can handle us in our viciousness. God is not afraid of human viciousness. By the rivers of Babylon, we really do feel rage, and we can't keep it a secret from God, nor do we need to. It is actually an honest prayer. They don't act upon it, and God can handle it. When I selected this passage for this sermon series a few weeks ago, we could not have known the week we would have had. We, could have not, we, couldn't, we would not have known the America of this week. We would not have known even the California of this week or the Riverside of this week. This weekend, we'd like to be a country that's cheering a rocket launch, the first NASA space flight in what, about a decade? When I selected this passage, we, I had no idea what this week would hold. On Sunday and Monday, the beginning of the week, I packed up books that have migrated to my house from the office here at the church. It's a lot more books than I realized. And when I got done packing them up, I grabbed, reached for my phone to take a picture, kind of photo journaling this shelter at home experience. I was startled to see there, there's really a lot of carpet in that room underneath all of these books. I took a picture and posted it in the Insta world, but that was not the photo I intended to post. Here's a picture I took when my boxes were actually all packed up on Monday, ready to drive back here to the church office. And that's when I noticed the one book on the top, this red, white, and black book. It's just kind of screaming out for attention as if it's been propped up on the top of the boxes. It's a, a little too postured, a little too pretentious sitting there as, as if to say, oh, look what she reads as if to make a claim about all of my reading material in these boxes. It's a book about racism written by Jelani Memory. It's called A Kid's Book About Racism. So I didn't post that picture because something about it felt off, self-congratulatory. This is Sunday, Monday. Look at the white pastor reading about racism. That was Monday, church. And then we came to Tuesday in the week and a video from Central Park that captured the nation's, nation's attention as a dog walker called the NYPD on a bird watcher. They have names. Amy Cooper, a white woman walking her dog off leash, and Christian Cooper, a black man bird watching, no relation to one another. He's bird watching in an area of the park where dogs are required to be, uh, to be leashed. And since then, she's issued an apology, and since then, we're left to interrogate our own souls. It turns out we have reflexes and instincts as, one, as human beings, hers different than his. And then another video, another video in the middle of the week. His name is George Floyd, complying with the public, handcuffing, being arrested in the city of Minneapolis, and we watch as the life is literally squeezed out of him. As one public servant puts his knee on his neck and several other watch. Hate between human siblings. It is a spiritual issue. I didn't know what I would hear in the song from Psalms this week until we've lived this week, until we actually had the week unfold in front of us. And whenever we open the Bible, we ought to expect that, right? We will read these texts experientially. 
Here's one thought that came to me this week. Whatever hate we carry into exile, it's still in our hands. Exile will put all the ugly under a microscope and a magnifying glass. Hate will put all the ugly there. It has nowhere else to go. This week, I'm reminded that exile is not an equal opportunity experience. I tend to read myself into these stories in the Bible, these exile communities, as part of the oppressed community, right? But here's the truth today, I'm actually not. I'm actually not very infrequently, infrequently in my life am I the oppressed community. It turns out I'm actually capable of becoming Babylon more often than I'm aware of. So I need to read the text with my oppressed siblings in mind. If no one has their knee on my neck, it means I must remove the knee from their neck. Jesus talked about this. It's a theme in his teachings. Open your Bible this afternoon. Go to Luke chapter 6, where Jesus insists that his disciples will replace all the acts of aggression with acts of generosity. Jesus will tell us, don't consult your political party, don't consult your cable network news, don't consult your public pop idol, don't consult even your denomination or your pastor, consult Jesus. There are multiple ways of being Christian in our world, and none of them includes subjugating our human siblings. My soul was heavy this week in an unbearable way since Wednesday. Heavy in a way that I've not been able to resolve. Has it been like that for you too? Heavy in a way that my stomach hurt and tears would fall unannounced. Has it been like that for you too? I'm learning that in Babylon, everything is stripped away. In Babylon, faith learns to not only survive, but to thrive without all of the props and trappings. In Babylon, there will be no temple and no priests and no scrolls, almost even no Sabbath. In Babylon, the people will dig deep and learn to unpack their faith, their life with God, actually dependent on one another. We all cry for mercy. We cry for mercy from God, and we cry for mercy from one another. I cannot separate my experience with God's grace from my participation in acts of mercy while we are in exile. So I have paced my house this week, not able to calm my anxious soul. How about you? All I knew was to call a few friends, people with skin darker than mine. All I knew was to subscribe to some podcasts, some new voices in my life. All I knew was to reach for some books that I've purchased but I've not actually read. All I knew was to come back here to the church. The next time you drive by, take notice. We have a row of white rose bushes, white, and five pink ones. It was years ago I told Bart Vaughn, look at these pink rose bushes. And he said, do you want me to pull them out and make them all the same color? And, and, and as soon as we named it, we knew, no, 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 we can't do that. That would be to violate all of this. All I knew was to come and look at the roses. So it is, I picked up this red, white, and black book this week. 
Oh, I have several other. Every summer I buy books on these topics. James Baldwin, last summer, this is the list of books I bought if you're looking for reading material. James Baldwin's script, I Am Not Your Negro. Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. Najine Frasad, Frasad, How to Make White People Laugh. Those were all books I bought last August, including this one little red and white book for children. I decided this week to open the book. Let me read to you. This is a book about racism, for reals. And yes, it really is for kids. It's a book, good book to read with a grown-up because you'll have lots to talk about afterwards. Now to introduce myself. My name is Jelani. My skin color looks like this because my dad is black and my mom is white, which makes me mixed or African-American, biracial, black, a person of color. I'm proud of who I am and the color of my skin, but because of my skin color, people aren't always nice to me. Sometimes I get called names. Other times, it's worse. The person doing it might not even realize that it hurts me a lot. And when they treat me that way, it makes me feel small. You see, some people believe that having different color skin means you aren't as good as others. That's called racism. What is racism? Racism means to hate someone, to exclude them, to treat them badly because of their race or the color of their skin. And it happens all the time. Not just in big ways. Sometimes it shows up in small ways, like a look or a comment or a question or a thought or a joke or a word or a belief. Racism? It's one of the worst kinds of mean someone can be because racism thinks being different is being bad. But being different is actually good. Like, really, 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 almost, I promise, really, really, I'm almost there. Good. 1,000% good because being different means we have so much more to offer each other. Things like help and ideas and strength and skills and creativity, life, patience, respect, community, love, knowledge, experience, perspective, insight, diversity, wisdom, empathy, and originality. The whole being different thing, it makes us better, much, much better. So if you see someone being treated badly, made fun of, excluded from playing, or looked down on because of their skin color, call it racism. It turns out this one kid's book is a pretty great summary of all of the others. In exile, we are not only in the presence of God, we are the presence of God in this world God so loves. Yeah, the wrong seems so strong. And still, God is our ruler. Yeah.